So, if you're new here, you may not know that Redeemer Church is a Reformed church. When other Christians ask us what we believe about God and the gospel and the world and the scriptures, we'll throw out that term sometimes, Reformed. And it operates sort of like theological shorthand to explain concepts like God's sovereign control over all things and God's foreknowledge, predestination, and election of his people. Man's inability to turn to Christ in faith without the Spirit's work. But perhaps the most distinctive aspect of Reformed theology is represented by the term glory. I want everybody to stop what they're doing and look behind you. At that wall. Some of you are still looking at me, and I can see your eyes. <laughs> All right. Sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola Christ, solus Christus, and uh, soli deo gloria. Right there. Literally plastered on the wall. We call these the five solas. You can look up here. I won't guilt you. <laughs> you We call these the five solas, and they represent the rally cry of the Protestant Reformation more than 500 years ago. The scriptures alone are our ultimate authority on matters of faith and practice, and they teach us that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and right there in the center. Soli Deo Gloria. God alone gets the glory for the rescue of his people. Glory. All of our doctrine revolves around the notion of the glory of God. It's the heartbeat of reformed thought and practice. It's the foundation upon which we build our services and write our songs and preach our sermons and teach the scriptures. And I would argue that the glory of God as the centerpiece of our theology is the most striking distinctive of reform faith and practice. But what is it? Have you ever noticed that there are words that we use so often? Words that are so fundamental to our worldview, so per- per- pervasive in our conversations that we forget what they mean? Or maybe we don't forget, but at least we can't easily articulate what they mean. I think glory is one of those words. But here's the thing. You can't not know what it means... Because the passage we're going to read this morning pivots on the concept of God's glory. So what is it? There are a few notable moments in the history of Israel that revolve around God's glory. And they might help help us answer that question. So the first one that came to mind. When God visits His people on Mount Sinai, His glory falls on Sinai. And his glory appeared to the people like a wildfire, devouring the face of the mountain. And when he spoke, the people were so terrified that they literally asked Moses to ask God to stop speaking to them lest they die. Not long after that, Moses asks to see God's glory And God has to, no joke, has to cover Moses' face with his hand so that he doesn't die from glory exposure. Or another one, when 
when they build the temple, Solomon asks for God's presence and God moves. God's glory filled the temple. And what happens? The priests can't even go inside of it to minister. They're physically unable to be in the same place as God's glory. The Bible uses the term glory often. Glory is something that kings have in small measure, but God has an infinite measure. Glory is the outward display of extraordinary beauty, extraordinary worth, extraordinary majesty. It means that we don't just stroll up to Him. We don't treat Him casually. It's something like splendor and power, sort of like we associate with throne rooms and scepters, except that God is not marginally above our station, but infinitely above our station. It's not just other than, but better than. And it's not just better than me, it's unimaginably better than everything. And maybe the best way to fully grasp the weight of God's glory is this. The glory of God caused Isaiah the prophet to cry out, Woe is me, for I am lost. That dynamic, Isaiah crying out in despair in the midst of God's glory, that that touches on one aspect that I think is supremely important to note about God's glory. If glory is on one side of a spectrum, wicked is on another. And people are wicked. And so it isn't terribly inaccurate to say that fallen man is allergic to God's glory. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. We have rebelled against God. We are defined by, characterized by, infected by sin. He is holy and we are wretched. And so His glory is death to us. We can't get near His glory because it will kill us to the degree that I encounter God. To the degree that I encounter God without a cover, without some sort of protection, I am undone, I am lost, I am ruined before the glory of God. So let me ask you a question. Why is it that we sing glory when we reflect on the birth of Jesus? Today we're going to read about the birth of the God-man. The birth of Jesus, the Christ. And when that happens, when the Word becomes flesh to dwell among us, the angels sing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And my problem is, those two things seem mutually exclusive. I mean, at every point in the history of Israel, When God's glory is on display, there is no peace among men. When God's glory is on display, men are running and falling on their face. So how? How can the angels sing glory to God and also sing peace among men? This passage will teach us the answer. And that answer is your only hope. Let's turn together to Luke 2. 
Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in an inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. All right, so there's just so much going on here. We'll have to take it bit to bit. Read that first paragraph again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So I think it's important to note at this point that Luke anchors the birth of Christ in the history of the world. These lines are authenticating the story. And all of the ancient historians worth their salt do this sort of thing by situating the story in historical events connecting historical figures whose life and reign would be collaborated in major private and public documents, in tax registrations, in polling data. Luke means for you to know, without a doubt, that there actually really truly was a guy named Joseph who was betrothed to a woman named Mary who gave birth to a boy in a barn and laid him to rest in a feeding trough. That's why these lines exist. He does the same thing in the next chapter. Let me read it to you. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zebedee, or son of Zechariah in the wilderness. 
This is a historian at work, and he's choosing to reference moments in history, public decrees, public officials that everyone knows about, or at the very least could be verified independently by anyone with access to public legal documents. But here's the thing. He didn't need to do it on such a global scale. He could have settled with a reference to local governors, local tetrarchs, local mandates, local religious officials. He, he, he doesn't do that, though. He begins the story of Christ's birth with Caesar. He begins with a decree by the leader of the Roman world, literally the guy in charge of nearly every people group on the planet. And that's on purpose. Because Luke is simultaneously demonstrating that God's working on a global scale to orchestrate the particular events that would lead to the rescue of his people. And also that God is rescuing his people on a global scale. See what I'm saying? He's simultaneously proving that he's working through all of these global people and political parties and, and, and governments to save his people And also that that salvation is relevant to all the people on the globe. Luke is implying what he'll make explicit in part two of this story, which is Acts. He's implying that this redemption is not just for a people, but this redemption is for every people, every tribe and tongue and nation. You can't miss that. And next week when we talk about Simeon, that thing will be shouted from the rooftops. This is the first paragraph of the story of the birth of the most important figure in all of human history. This is singularly valuable landscape, and Luke isn't wasting a word of it. By beginning this story with a reference to the king of nearly every people group in the known world, Luke is telling us that while God's rescue of his people may begin in Israel, it certainly doesn't end there. Amen? And you should say amen because almost none of us are from Israel. (laughs) Right? we got to keep moving. So we're told that Caesar has decreed that everyone must return to their hometown in order to be counted for tax purposes. Now that's not merely an accident of history. Luke's teaching God's people that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. See, the prophecies of the coming Messiah were clear to all who searched carefully the words of God. The Christ would be called a Nazarene. But they also seemed to indicate that Christ would come from Bethlehem. And you might see how this would be a matter of confusion for those who trace the shadows to learn more about their promised Savior. Because those two things seemed contradictory. Which is it? Will the Christ be from Nazareth? Or will He come from Bethlehem? And the answer to that question, as impossible as it must have seemed at the time, is both. For centuries, God was sending promises through prophets. And for centuries, He was orchestrating the events of human history in sometimes bizarre and unexpected ways to to bring those promises to fruition. God never once faltered, and He never once made a mistake. And look, you should remember that. 
the next time that people look at the Scriptures and claim that they contradict themselves. Because the problem is not with the Scriptures. The problem is that their vision is not wide enough. And make sure yours is. Alright, keep reading. And Joseph went up to, from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The Son of God was born in a barn. Okay, so you're thinking it, and I'm certainly thinking it. After you left the front door wide open, have your parents ever shouted at you, were you born in a barn? It's funny, right? Because you'd be in good company. (laughs) Right? Jesus Christ was born in a barn. And he spent his first week sleeping in a feeding trough for livestock. Now I want you to soak in that truth for a moment because it's extraordinarily relevant to the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Do you remember Mary's song? We glanced briefly at her words two weeks ago, but I want to reflect on this poem one more time. Listen carefully while I read. And while you're listening, imagine the scene of the unmarried virgin giving birth to the Son of God in a barn. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Now, if you were to walk away from that poem with a single impression, a single repeated theme, what would it be? What image, what idea is recounted over and over again? He has looked on my humble estate. He has scattered the proud, but he has exalted the humble. He sent away the rich, but he fills the hungry. See, God's rescue of his people, as Mary reflects on it, looks a lot like the poor and the helpless and the hopeless and the humble being lifted up, being restored, feasting, reigning. And at the same time, the rich and the proud and the mighty are humiliated. That's the dynamic she's focusing on in this song. God's redemption establishes an upside-down kingdom. The first are last and the last are first. And you can't truly grasp the meaning of these words until the story shifts your gaze upon the scene of Christ's birth. 
Can you imagine, with all the powers of your intellect, can you imagine more poignant irony? God came down. God. The rightful king of the world, for whom and through whom all things were created. God came down and took flesh. And he could have been chosen to be born anywhere. He could have been born anywhere. He could have been born to anyone. But he chose Mary, a young lady of no social, political, economic consequence who would be immediately immersed in controversy. And he could have been born anywhere. But he chose a barn in a podunk village. And he could have laid his rest laid his head to rest anywhere, but he chose to sleep in a feeding trough. And his servants, the angels of fire, who stood before the Father himself, himself, shouting glory and honor forever, he could have sent his angels to anyone. He could have announced his birth before Caesar in the Roman Senate, but he chose shepherds in a field full of sheep. These are signs that the upside-down kingdom is coming. And all the words of Mary's song are given flesh and blood in this scene. Jesus came to save the hopeless and the helpless and the poor. He came to save the wretched and the social outcast. He came to save the lost and the broken and to teach His people. To teach His people the nature of His redemption. He came by way of Mary in a barn in Bethlehem Laid in a manger. Keep reading. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. Okay, did you catch that? Did you catch what happens just as soon as the angel of the Lord appears? Glory. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And the way that they respond is precisely the way that we'd expect for them to respond. Because they're terrified. But notice what the angel says. Don't be afraid. (laughs) Right there in the midst of the glory of the Lord. The angel says, fear not. And you should be immediately asking the question, why not? Why shouldn't they be afraid? Because to this point, fear in the midst of God's glory is the only appropriate response. So why shouldn't they fear standing before an angel of fire in the midst of a holy God's glory? Fear not, the angel says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
a Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Don't be afraid because I'm bringing you good news of great joy for you and all your people. A Savior is coming. The promised Christ, the King of Israel is coming. That's why. That's why you shouldn't be afraid of God's glory anymore. And just before he's finished telling the shepherds where they can find this Savior, bam! The multitude of heavenly hosts shows up and listen to their song. Glory to God in the highest. And of course they'd say that. Because they spend their ancient lives in His midst, standing before His throne, reflecting on His worth and His grandeur and His majesty. These angels are spotless. They aren't wicked. They aren't wretched. So the glory of God is something they can revel in without hesitation. You wouldn't be surprised to hear any one of them shout glory to God at any point because the earth and the mountains and the skies and the birds and the trees are His work. And He sustains them all with His power. So when the Son of God is born, of course they'd shout glory. And you wouldn't think twice if they stopped there. But just then... and. And maybe this is the best part. I don't think it's right to say it's the best part because both parts are kind of working together. They're two sides of the same coin, but this is my favorite side of that coin, at least right now. Just then the angels sing, glory to God in the highest, and then they sing, and on earth, peace among those with whom He's pleased. God's glory and man's peace in chorus without skipping a beat. Glory to God and peace among men. How can those two things possibly meet? Fear not, for unto you is born a Savior. Do you remember? To the degree that I encounter God without a cover... Without some sort of protection, I am undone. I am lost. I am ruined before the glory of God. But what if I had a cover? What if I had protection? What if the glory of God was no longer wrath and destruction to me, but life and hope and restoration? What if I stood before God righteous? On that day, I'd sing together with the chorus of angels, glory to God and peace. Amen. It's important that you follow the structure of this passage. It's important that you understand what this song is doing. When the the angel arrives, he gives good news to the shepherds. They don't yet understand what that good news means. They they haven't yet teased out the implications of that good news. The Savior was born. Good news! The Savior was born today. So what? What What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my people? How will that change my situation? That's the structure of this passage. The angel delivers good news and just then, just before the shepherds have an opportunity to gather themselves and ask questions, 
Just then the army of angels arrives to interpret the good news with this song. What happens when you bridge the chasm between God and man? When you fix the glory problem? Peace. Peace is what that means. God's glory and man's peace. And listen, you should read that word for what it means in its totality. Peace here connotes salvation, redemption, reconciliation, physical and spiritual peace before God and among God's people. When the angels shout peace, every reader of this passage is thinking back to all the promises of peace related to the Messiah that was promised long ago. That's the work of the Savior. This baby, this Savior, this Christ, this Lord, the King of Israel, the baby lying in a barn is the living, breathing intersection of God's glory and man's peace. He is the way. He is the solution to the glory problem. See, we have these promises throughout the Scripture that God's glory would flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you must know how intimidating that must have felt to those who knew without a shadow of a doubt that they couldn't stand, they couldn't survive in the midst of God's glory. How is that good news if I stand wretched in my sin? The answer lies in a manger, in a barn, next to an inn, in a podunk town in Israel. Because when the people of God are bought by the blood of a Savior, they stand righteous and confident before the glory of the Lord. Total peace. Unobstructed glory at the same time. Keep reading. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had said. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Okay, first I want you to notice something simple. What did the shepherds do when they heard the good news? When they're told of their salvation, when they learned where they could find their Savior, they ran, right? With haste and saw it for themselves. And when they learned with their own eyes that these things were true, they repeated that good news to everybody who would listen. Brothers and sisters, that'll preach. Notice what the Scriptures say. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And I love that line. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's lovely as an aspect of Luke's storytelling, isn't it? But I think it also implies that each of these stories came directly or indirectly from Mary herself. Luke begins his story by recounting how he'd spoken directly with eyewitnesses 
of whom Mary must have been counted. Because we know not only that these things happened, but we also know how she felt about them. We know that she pondered them in her heart. Mary, who would watch this baby grow in stature and wisdom and in the favor of man. She remembered this promise of a Savior, this promise of glory and peace, as she watched Jesus heal the multitudes and cast out demons. And she remembered the angel's words as Jesus hung on a cross. Accomplishing the redemption promised to Israel so many centuries ago. One last thing. Read verse 20 with me. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So look, we're not, we're not a chapter and a half into Luke. But there's this pattern emerging. Rescue is promised to Zechariah and he shouts praises to the God who saves. Rescue is promised to Mary and she shouts praises to the God who saves. Rescue is promised by the angel of the Lord and the multitude of heavenly hosts shout praises to the God who saves. Rescue is promised to shepherds in a field and they shout praises to the God who saves. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. But hear me out. If I just say, you know, theoretically stood up here for a half hour and I promised you rescue... By the word of the Lord. If I stood before you and pointed at the word of God and told you that we had found a solution to the glory problem and all of a sudden God's glory and man's peace met at the intersection of Christ's work. If I stood up here and promised you rescue, how ought you respond? The only appropriate response to God's promise of rescue is praise. That's it. Ever. Remember the shepherds. They heard the promise. They ran like fools to see that promise realized. They told the good news of God's rescue to anybody that would listen. And then they shouted praises to the God who saves. Because that's what you do when you encounter the gospel. I'm suggesting here that the story of Zechariah and the story of Mary and the story of the angels and the story of the shepherds and the story of Simeon and the story of Anna, I'm suggesting that these stories aren't just describing what happened. They're prescribing how we ought to respond to God's promise of rescue. And that response is always praise. We need to be a praising people. Redeemer Church needs to be a church characterized by praise. And not just on Sunday morning, guys. Look, if these people who had a clue two minutes ago that the Son of God will be born in a manger, in a barn, on the rough side of town, if these guys who surely hadn't the foggiest, the gravity and depth and totality of the redemption they'd just been promised, If these guys could shout praises to the God who saves, 
surely we can too. We who have the words of God in print in our hands right now. We who know because God told us who Jesus Christ is and what He's done for His people and what that means and how it changes our lives and the tremendous weight of glory which surpasses all comprehension that awaits us. Surely we can become characterized by praise. Amen? We complain so much. I complain so much. When life gets harder, when things don't go my way, sometimes when I've just slept slightly less than I'd prefer, I complain about that stuff. But listen, no generation has had readier access to the gospel than ours. No generation has had as much leisure time to gaze upon the promise of God's rescue than ours. No generation has had as much opportunity to carefully explore the faithfulness of God to establish His church and to sustain His church and to send His church to the nations so that we may all know the glory of God who saves. No generation has been this close to the culmination of all things in the coming kingdom of Jesus than ours. We should always be praising the God who saves. It should be our life's rhythm. You've heard the good news. This baby, Jesus, would carry the sins of His people to the cross. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God, you don't have to. He has made a way for you By His blood, you're adopted in faith by grace, an heir together with Him of all things, sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance to come. And by His work, we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? When we suffer, we can rejoice because all things work together for our good. When we have trials, we can rejoice because this produces endurance so that we'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing for the day of Christ when our dear brothers and sisters fall to sleep. We may rejoice. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When the world falls apart, we can rejoice because kingdoms will fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And His kingdom is coming and it will never end. We have every reason to praise, Redeemer. So praise the God who saves. Here and now, praise the God who saves in song. Yeah, that's a good application. Yes, later, when you're home and you recall the message of the angels, praise the God who saves. Yes, when you fail and you're forced to remember that the blood of Jesus has made you righteous, so that you can still confidently approach the throne of grace and ask for help. Praise the God who saves. Yes, when you're weary and tired because you're that much closer to the day of Christ, praise the God who saves. And when you read the Word and discover yet another facet of this perfect work of redemption, praise the God who saves. In all things... Praise the God who saves, Redeemer, for He has promised rescue. Amen? Amen.
This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.